In a world where three pudgy history teachers discuss random aspects of history. I've got nothing. No, oh, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, I, wait, who you calling pudgy? Yeah, man, that's kind of rude. No, I'm rude. It praises your juvenance. And it is time for the History Bros here, everybody. How are we all doing today? Oh, here we go. <laughs> what? Should have known. Should have known what? Uh, that you would do Should've that. Should have known better. <laughs> Should have known that I would do What? <laughs> Could, what what has happened up to this point while we've been recording? Oh, I introduced you guys. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, All right. Well, I should have known you'd introduce us. Right. All right. So, how you guys been? <laughs> I've been great. How you doing there, uh, Mr. Hatfield? Oh boy. Um, you know, good. Good. Um, you know, just uh still working from home. We did have uh holidays on Friday and Monday. So, um didn't really have to work. Uh, so we've got to get back into the swing of things. We're going to start talking about WW1. Outstanding. And um, there's a really good, um, you can't find, I, I found it on YouTube, but YouTube has been pulling down a whole bunch of stuff lately. Really? But there was uh, Days That Shook the World, which was a BBC series. Okay. And they have uh, the bombing of Hiroshima, but they also have uh, the start of World War One. And it's oh, wow. just it's really kind of a dynamic and interesting way that they uh, that they go about it. But it's um, that's a it's a fascinating one that they have. So all right. And I saw you usually try and show the kids. But since obviously uh, the kids won't be there with me, <laughs> something um, a little different. So which is kind of fun. I've enjoyed the, the challenge. Yeah. So, but it's it's tough when you have something really a good resource and you can't get it out there. But I did see you made one heck of a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> well, okay, so here's the thing. So we've been doing a lot of the shopping online stuff. In yep. fact, um, I also uh, ordered some wine and some liquor online hey, to be delivered as go. well. It's my first time trying to do that, um, and haven't received it yet. But um, the uh, but anyway, uh, so we tried. We we have Amazon Prime, and so we went ahead and uh, there's a a uh, a low. Is it not? Wait, not no. It's Whole Foods, and so they will deliver it if you're a Prime member. You know, they deliver it for free. But I'd never tried it before, so there's a whole bunch of things of can you do you want this um, substituted if they don't find it, mm. right? And we didn't really know. And so we're just, you know, we just sent it off. And all of a sudden I wind up getting all these texts. They can't find this. Do you want this substituted? Oh, you didn't answer. So yes, it's being substituted and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what? And so I wanted like a couple of pounds of chicken wings. And they didn't have any, um, mm -hmm. even though it said that it was in stock. So instead they substitute it for like the same poundage but of a whole chicken, <laughs> which I'm kind of like, well, that's not exactly what I was wanting. 
That's in but, the ballpark with it. So well, I mean, but the thing is, is, it's not. I mean, but we have this air fryer that we got for my uh, for my birthday, and it mm-hmm. makes like an amazing rotisserie chicken. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, what do you complain about? In there, so I'm like, well, I mean, we will. And th- the thing is, is that it makes the best chicken wings I've ever had. Yeah. Um, or that I've ever made. I can't say that I've ever had, but that I've ever made. Um. It I've, pickle chips. I'm still in the process of trying to figure out. I'm still trying to fine tune the pickle chip things because I would love to have pickle chips. Nice. Um, and uh, but uh, rotisserie chicken. Um, you can obviously make all kinds of stuff in it, but the rotisserie chicken it has a little rotisserie uh, system in it, and you can. We've done upwards of a four pound chicken in there, and about forty five minutes, it's done. Wow. And you just pull the little rod out, and there's a, a plastic base that you can put it in and screw in the side, so it stabilizes it, so you can uh, strip it. Mm-hmm. And outstanding. Um, so it's uh, so yeah. So I was like, well, I mean, and the thing is, that's going to last us longer than chicken wings probably would anyway. And true. So we made a uh, baked potato, chicken wings. Oh, not chicken wings. Uh, the rotisserie chicken. Mm-hmm. Rubbed it down with some. Um, We've been using a lot of. We've been experimenting more with ghee. The uh, like the karate outfits. Right. Yeah. I sure. I like to cook in karate outfits. <laughs> it doesn't it's, surprise it's, me. It's my thing. It's my thing. It doesn't surprise me. And so like, <laughs> so I'll sit there and I'm like, "Do you want to taste this?" And my wife will come over and I'll you know I say, "If you can grasp the spoon from my hand." <laughs> Then it will be time to go. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. And then I karate chop her. <laughs> no, um, no. So, um, no, ghee is like a clarified butter. Oh, and, um, oh my mistake. So instead of just using regular, I mean, and the thing is, it, it does have a little bit of a different taste to it, but um, we, I bought, it's kind of expensive though. So it's like, I just, we wanted to try it out and see if it would be a little, I think it's supposed to be a little bit healthier, but I don't know. So I took some uh, garlic infused ghee and rubbed down the outside of the chicken and put some um, salt and pepper and some spices on it and put it in there. And 45 minutes later it was done and it's delish. Sounds so good. good. Outstanding. So, yeah, so that's what I was doing yesterday. So. I love to cook anyway. I yeah. mean, that's the big thing for me. Like making, I'm gonna be making a big old pot of chili this week, and mm. ooh, uh, my just, my chili cooking is like blood. very therapeutic for me. So especially if it's a slow simmering kind of process. So you right, should you right. should come up here and we'll smoke some meat. There you go. Um, I, that's one thing I've never tried. So come on up, um, open invitation. Okay. There you go. Right. There you go. I did. How it. long does it take to uh to uh, what's like the biggest thing that you've ever tried to uh, smoke? I did a brisket once. Uh, I didn't prep it myself. I didn't trust myself, um, and I still don't. I won't do a brisket by myself. Uh, and that's that was a twelve hour cook, and it's still I didn't I didn't go far enough with it. Um, I, Why don't you trust yourself? Um, briskets are really technical because you got to trim them right. And I don't oh. know the method yet for trimming them. Um, now, are you, are you, now, are you like, how do I say this? Are you harvesting the brisket yourself? No. Or is it? No, not- I don't go out and cut the pig up and, yeah, or the Well, cow. I didn't want to assume. No, that's I okay. mean, yeah. you're out there in hog heaven. No, wink, I know. Wink, I know. So. Uh, truth, actually, the one brisket I did do, 
I think, yeah, that one came from, a, 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 so I mean, up here, it's not uncommon to buy, and this is going to sound stupid, but a half of a half, which is a difference, yeah. uh, which is different than a quarter of beef. It's the same amount, yep. but basically you're splitting a half. So if you just get a quarter, you're only going to get like one quarter, like the, the front right quarter of it, where if yep. you get a half of a half, it's every cut from the, the right side or the left side. So uh, Geldmacher gets it, but... Um, and so I basically said, hey, if nobody wants the brisket, I'll take it. And I think we did it that way. But I regularly do pork shoulders, and those are about 8 to 10 pounds. And um, those... Also known as pork butts. Yes, pork butts, yep. That's what I usually mm-hmm. call it, but I didn't know if I could say that here. Or uh, a Boston butt. Um, now, do you know why they're called butts? I think we talked about this before. I forgot. You can tell me. Isn't it the... Uh, well, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Isn't it go the on. weight of... Uh, unit of measurement? Um, I, I guess it was kind of how it was being transported. Mm. So they used, I think the barrels were, re, or I think were called butts. I think you're right. I think that's what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, for me to do a pork butt usually is about eight, maybe nine hours, depending on the air temperature, humidity and all that stuff. Um, and when I do those ones, I'll, so the process for that will start the night before and I've got, a. Uh, a recipe I use for an injection. We're using apple, apple, not cider, uh, apple juice, Worcestershire, Worcestershire sauce, soy sauce, salt, the whole thing. Inject that, nice. and then that base over that that marinates overnight. Then, and then in the morning I get up, take it out, and uh, rub what it. What size container are you uh, marinating it in? Uh, usually take. Anymore now, I've gotten some of those, you know, the aluminum foil, thermal, oil barrel. Yeah, well, no, 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 they're not that. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. Because a butt can be pretty big, a pork or, you know, one of the, yeah, the breasts. I mean, it's, it's like, it, it's like, it, usually it's about the size of like a, a little bit bigger than a loaf of bread. Maybe not as long and a little wider. Gotcha. So, okay. I mean, it's not massive, but anyway, from, from there then, uh, I use a rub. It just depends on which rub I have available or which one I want to use. I don't make my own rub at this point. And then I've got a, a basting sauce or a, a mop sauce. And so you put it on the on the cooker, and I go out once an hour and basically mop this thing with this sauce. And it's apple cider mm-hmm. vinegar and other stuff. And then mm. cook it to – they always said, well, pork is done at about 195. I found out, no, take it up to about 202, 203, and then it will just absolutely fall apart. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been – I've had such good luck with that lately. Um, no, this is in a smoker? Yeah, I've got a wood pellet grill that I use. It's a little easier to keep the temperatures. If I knew what, what I was doing – What kind of wood do you use? Uh, so usually it's a hardwood competition blend pellet, but I've got some hickory laying around too. Okay. Nice. Okay. Nice. Yeah. By the way, a History butt group. is a traditional unit of volume used uh-huh. for wines and other alcoholic beverages – a oh, butt is generally dis- defined to be two hogsheads, hmm. but the size of hogsheads varies according to the contents. In the United States, a hogshead is typically 63 gallons, and a butt is therefore 126 gallons. So, Geldmacher right. well, was correct. Nice. I think, but I think you can put 126 gallons in what would typically be a barrel, maybe. So, I don't know. Sure. Hmm. I do have one North Carolina connection. 
to the, to my, my barbecue. I I don't like and and I apologize for this, Mister Mister Geldmacher. Uh-oh. I'm not a big fan of Kansas City barbecue. It's too sweet. Oh, uh, barbecue sauce. Okay. Sauce. Okay, you're fine. You're fine. The barbecue I like. <laughs> the barbecue sauce. I'm not a huge fan of. It's just too sweet. I love a vinegar based Carolina. Oh yeah, there you go. Love that. Oh, yeah, it's tasty stuff. Oh, it's, it's so stuff. good, especially with pork. On um, beef, I'll I, I'll go with like a KCBS type, but with pork, I want I want the vinegar base. It's so. Now, good. Now, do you guys have um? We have a, a chain out here called Smithfields Barbecue. I don't know if you guys have that out there, but we don't. Smithfield. So Smithfield, like, we have the farms where we're growing your pig because it's actually that's what it, well, Smithfield I is a packager. To, I I would only get the fried chicken from there. Sure, and you can get uh, you know like uh, beans and like coleslaw or you know potato salad or whatever, and it would also come with some uh, hush puppies and um, it would have your vinegar base uh, sauce that could come along with it. Okay, just, yeah, vinegars. That's yeah, some people don't. Uh, there was an episode of um, uh, Late Night with Steve Colbert, and he was talking with Zach Galifianakis, and Zach Galifianakis was from uh, this. It was from, I think, kind of around this area, I think. Um, but anyway, they were talking about he's uh, Colbert is from South Carolina, and there's more of a, a mustard-based sauce. I, I hate that. Of, I will not use mustard-based yeah, well, there's a there's a funny little clip where they're talking, and he's like, you know, you guys just ruin your barbecue with the with the vinegar based sauce. And <laughs> Galifianakis was like, we're actually really we're really gonna fight right now. Really, we're gonna... He says, and my 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 best the best part of it was he was like, now, are you are you proud to be from North Carolina? He says, I'm I'm more proud than you should be of you being from South Carolina or something. It was something along the lines that was wow. Like, wow. I was like, wow, that's, there you <laughs> go. Well, speaking of fighting, we should probably get into this day in his- history. we got a lot of fighting to do today. Well, wait, well, um, Geldmacher, are you doing any uh, cooking or Oh, anything? I'm sorry. You're right. I, I, I blew off Geldmacher. Oh, jeez. No, no, no. I, uh, I'm not the, uh, I'm not the food prep person in my house. I probably should be because I do actually enjoy it. Uh, but my wife is is solely in charge of that. Uh, yesterday for what would have been Easter, she had, you know, gotten two smaller hams, and uh, you know, she actually recreated the honey honey baked ham glaze recipe. Mm-hmm. Like she found a recipe for the like a you know like the copycat basically. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it was so good! Oh, so good! So she's extremely good at what she does, oh, uh, and I'm more than happy to uh, to be the recipient of the, uh, <laughs> the of a effects. nice meal. <laughs> nice. I didn't do a pork. Yeah, lo- I, I did a pork loin and it got a little dry, so I don't want to talk about it. But my wife, my wife did fried biscuits for the first time, and they were amazing. And she also Ooh. did uh, corn chowder, and that was really good. Lots of bacon. I'm not a big corn person, but you know, whatever. Yeah, no well, offense. my name's Corn, so kiss my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I we, said, uh, I, should I have said with all due respect? I'm sorry. I no, apologize. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> all right. We, um, one thing, though, I will say uh, we made uh, um, doo doo cookies. Yeah. Uh, I saw this on, on social. My, my dog explained the name is okay. hilarious. Right. Well, because that that's what they look like. Uh, some people call them cow pie cookies. Some people call them you know, whatever. They're actually no they're referred cookies. to as no bake or boiled yeah. cookies. No bake cookies. Mm. And so basically, what you do is you take like a stick of butter, right, and you put in and you like uh, some, huh? Then you eat it. 
Right. Then you just eat that, and then that's <laughs> yeah. it. And then you go buy some cookies and have a heart attack. No, um, you um, you 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 melt the you melt the butter, uh, vanilla, uh, sugar, and cocoa, in um, you put it in a pot and you melt all that together, and then um, you get that up to I guess it's yeah you get that up to about a boil. And then you'll put in like about a cup or so of peanut butter. Mm. And you just basically kind of stir that around until the peanut butter, it, it almost looks like it's starting to marbleize in there. And then it will, um, it'll start to kind of just become like a little sauce. And then you put in like a couple of um, scoops of oats mm -hmm. and then you dollop them out. You don't have to bake them because obviously they're typically known as no bake cookies and you just dollop them out. But uh, I've never gotten mine to set up ever. It's like my favorite cookie, like of all time. And I've never been able to set the, the either it's because I'm too anxious to eat them. So I don't really mix it all together that well. Maybe that's why. But um, my wife and I made them uh, a couple days ago. Yes. Yeah. A couple days ago. And they set up like perfectly. And um, it's like one little bit can make about, oh, God, like three dozen. But um, it's pretty low impact, you know. It's it's they're really simple to make. It's just trying to get them to set up so they so you're not eating the entire thing with a spoon, which is acceptable. <laughs> exactly. But, um, I mean, why not, right? Why not? <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, it's all it's all going to be processed and going the same place anyway. <laughs> right. Right. All right. We got to get buying the food. You're only renting it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We got to get so to history. Yeah, we got to get yes. to the history. All right, uh, Gelmacher, uh, okay. why, why don't you start us off, Gelmacher? April 8th, 1832, some 300 American troops from the 6th Infantry leave Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis to confront the Sauk Indians in what would become known as the Black Hawk War. Hey, just down the road from me. Yeah. Sort of. Sort of. Well, and parts, sort of you. They did some stuff in Illinois, too. <laughs> there you go. I think he was captured in Illinois, but uh, the Battle of Bad Axe ended not all that far from where I live. So, cool. Um, very familiar with that area. Yeah, that he one. was. Um, his autobiography is pretty interesting. And what they would typically yeah. do is then they would take these defeated, um, I guess, Native American commanders, if that's what you want to call them, mm -hmm. and then take them on a tour into the East to kind of fully break their spirit. Really? <laughs> to kind of say, just to let you know, this is what's happening here that's coming your way. So right. if you're ready to fight all of these people, then, you know. Yeah. And I think he speaks to that. He comes back and he's just like, oh, my God, there's just there's just so many of them. I don't know. If you can mm -hmm. Sure. All right. There's a lot. Have you ever noticed this particular week in history is full of a lot of like not just like, oh, there's a lot of events, but like major, major events during this yeah, particular like, week. Seriously. I mean, a lot of times we talk about, oh, this is a big week. No, this is a big week. Yeah. And that's, we had to <laughs> go, we put in extra ones because of that, because there's a lot. Uh, April 12th yeah. of 18, 18, I cut somebody off there. Sorry. No, you're good. April 12th of 1861, the American Civil War began as Confederate troops under the command of General Pierre Beauregard. Open fired at 4.30 a.m. on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. Did he? Because I was always under the impression that nobody knows who fired first. Oh, that's right. We mm. don't know. Wait, 
that's a thing in the South? Is that what they say? <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it was like uh, no one's really certain. But then you hear about certain people. I mean, we all know that it was the uh, war of northern aggression. So the northerns, sure. uh, northerners, they were all obviously the ones that fired the first shot. Oh, of, co- oh, of course. Of, of course. course. They, were. they also fired the I last mean, shot. <laughs> I mean, look, don't try and spread fake narratives around. Right. I mean, we know. We know what happened. We're down here. <laughs> right. <laughs> the stories have been handed down. Don't let these fancy book learnings tell you something different. That's, right. got, that's not getting muddled up in fact, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of like when I said Northerners fired the last shot. That's probably not true. Uh, let's see. Well, we got that one. No, you, got, well, you, you guys have been to Sumter, right? I have not. I have not, no. Oh, okay, okay. Have you? Yeah, I went uh, as a uh, Cub Scout. Oh. And then nice. we spent the, we spent the night on the USS Yorktown. Oh, cool. Nice. Um, and then, which I did not appreciate at all. Oh, really? At yeah. that age. Get a little, little, um, little spooked. But we went down to Charleston for, I guess it was our anniversary. Um, I guess it was, was it last year? Oh, and I thought you were talking we about the Cub Scouts anniversary. No. Okay. Yeah, I I was far far too lazy to be a Cub Scout. Um, okay. But uh, then we went down there for our uh, anniversary, and we're like, you know, well, why don't we go out there? And I had almost forgotten that I had actually been there. But um, it was um, it's pretty it's a pretty little fascinating place. Not a whole lot to see, and we couldn't stay there for too terribly long. No. But um, uh, they have. Uh, I think it was. I think it was in use through world war one if i'm correct i need to double check but i believe it my favorite representation of it is the one they did on south park where cartman tries to restart the civil war on a bet oh boy so boy yeah if you haven't seen it go watch it (laughs) (laughs) all right um Uh, all right april 13th 1864 (sighs) somebody was me this angers me (laughs) this angers me (laughs) Somebody set Hatfield. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna hear Hulk smash. (laughs) Um, and the thing is, is that I mean, I just, I mean, I, the whole Confederacy thing, it, whatever. Um, 1864, (laughs) Union forces under General Sherman begin their devastating march through Georgia. Mm. Yeah, he. Um, I mean, and the thing was, he was so polite. To everybody that he came across, he was like, "Pardon me, but could we please burn your crops?" I mean, it's like you know. But it's um, it's true. Yeah, he's um. Well, like you seriously, there are people that are that get seriously still angry when you mention like Sherman in and around these parts. Really? Oh goodness. Well. Okay, fair enough. I believe you when you said he was he was polite though, because you did just tell us that you're from there, so you've got all the stories, right? No, he was. Well, no, I just that was that I was making a joke. Oh, everybody oh. knows that he was an angry drunk coming through and spitting on people, and I'm just kidding. No, I don't. That's not, <laughs> that's not good. Uh, Holy cow! All okay. right, fair enough. Yeah, kind of like kind of like Grant. We all know Grant was a no good uh, carpet bagger. I don't know. That's all I I got. He actually was a drunk, but that's for another time. Well, there you go. All right. Let's let's 
let's move along so that uh, Hatfield's head doesn't pop off. <laughs> uh, April 14th of 1865, and there's a story here too. Uh, while attending the final production of our American cousin, President Lincoln shot in the back of the head by actor John Wilkes Booth. Mm. Like we said, it's a big week in history. Right. I have questions. So, oh, go ahead. So you what, go was first. The, uh, what was the quote? That uh, what was the line that uh, that uh, oh boy, Wait, we Booth waited for before he shot Lincoln? In the you old sockdologizing man trap. Okay, so so yeah. so you know, no big deal. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> no, so I have questions, <laughs> and they're for Hatfield. Uh, yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. No, I, these are like not like try to set you up and make you look bad questions like I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> These are legit. All right. So obviously this one's a big one. And I, I just last night I watched The Conspirator. I got to see my my, my bro Ching. Hatfield. I, exactly. I was thinking, hey, right. I am supporting Hatfield by watching this movie because he's going to get right. like a, an eighth of a penny for this, hopefully. For my, for my, for my. We, we may call it a hay penny. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. So, I mean, a couple episodes ago, we we did the whole movie thing uh, with, with, um, uh, Cullen, who was also in the movie, I saw him too, so he got an eighth of a penny as well. Um, yes. Even though they dubbed over one of his lines, oh really? Which I always thought was funny. Yeah. <laughs> so here's what I I, I want to know. Um, obviously, you played the part of Harry Hawk, who was Asa Trenchard in the actual uh, mm-hmm. Our American Cousin. I don't know. I don't remember. It's all nonsense. You really don't remember? <laughs> <laughs> okay. How much research did you have to do to to understand his part, or did you just kind of go in? I, I'm just curious on that. They did not give me really any information at all, so I wound up going downstairs into the. <laughs> they put us up at a Fairfield Inn in Savannah, Georgia, and I went down into the business center, mm-hmm. and um, because the script was not the the lines that kind of information wasn't even in at least the script that i have like your um, lines weren't in there right they just talked about the scene and um so uh it's been a while since i've taken a look at it um so but i don't think the lines were in there so i had to go down there and find or maybe they maybe they hand maybe they gave it to us. I think they, no no no. They did send over an envelope that had the lines in the envelope, and it was uh, myself and um, oh my god, I can't think of her name. But she, the the lady that was on stage with me at that time, she's I'm gonna have to look her name up. Uh, that's gonna she she would kill me. It was the first movie she had done too. We were both scared to death. <laughs> um, but um, we went and I went down to the business center of the Fairfield Inn, which was basically a little corner of the lobby. Right. And it was like one computer. So I hop on there and uh, did a little re- did a little research to find out about it. And I was thinking, cause it's, um, cause they were supposed to be British mm-hmm. and my character, cause it's our American cousin and my character was not, but you can't really do all that because no ultimately in the grand scheme of the movie nobody cares right as an actor right. obviously this was my i mean i'm a historian 
Um, it was my first acting gig, you know, Redford's directing it. So yeah, I want to know about it. I want to like, just <laughs> let's make this be an, we're going to peel the layers of this character back. This is going to be the onion that is sure. Asa Trenchard. Right. Um, <laughs> and so we get there and honestly, I was so, God, I was so naive. The experience was amazing. I am totally proud of what it is I did. But, you know, we sit there and I'm thinking we're going to do let's do some scene studies, you know, and, you know, this kind of stuff. So me and uh, the uh, the other actress who I I swear I'm going to have to look this up. Um, what's, she, the, uh, what's, the character, what's the character's name? Um, I'm just, well, anyway, I'll look uh, it up I'll look um, well, it's Is it Laura uh, Keen? I can't even think of the Ms. Uh, I can't think of her name. Laura Keen. Uh, Hogan. Hogan was her oh, last name, though. Mind. I think Hogan. Kathleen Hogan. Kathleen Hogan. Hogan. Thanks, Kathleen. Kathleen Hogan. That's it. Yeah, Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen. If you're, I apologize. You. She just had, recently, I think, had a birthday that I said, you know, happy birthday to. And, but anyway, so we got together and we ran lines and we were doing character stuff and we were like what is this scene oh, about? Geez. And we're just doing like breaking it down and scoring the scripts and all this kind of stuff. And so we get there and they march us into the, the, uh, the warehouse that they had everything all set up. All the extras are there. They're all set up. They're sitting there. Who knows how long they've been sitting there. And all of a sudden I'm like, uh Oh, this isn't going to be at all what I thought we were going to be doing. I mean, I knew we'd be <laughs> doing this thing, but I thought there would be some prep work to it. So we get up on stage and they said, okay, well, we're going to, let's go ahead and just uh, start. So, and I'm like, well, what, what do you, wait, uh, what do you, what do you want us, what do you want us to do? Act. Yeah. And that's, they were basically <laughs> said, well, just move around and we'll see what works. And he says, all right, background. And I'm like, oh, and I look at her, she's looking at me. And we simultaneously, oh uh, we, we simultaneously pooped our pants. <laughs> <laughs> Because you have dozens of extras there, and I mean, nowadays I would be like, "Oh, of course, this is how it's going to be." But I didn't know that at the time, so she sure. had, she didn't either. So I, we immediately go over, and I say, "Okay, well, you come over here. I'll counter, and then we'll just sort of follow each other, and just you know, we'll counter each other on stage and whatever." Because she had done a whole bunch of theater, so had I. So that wound up working in our favor, and oh, yeah. we screwed up the first take so bad. And so they reset. And I mean, you've got these people that are sitting there and they're responding to you. They've never, they don't know what's exactly going to happen. Some of them may know what the play was about, mm -hmm. but then it just winds up. So um, by the time, and it was a night shoot. So we shot until about seven or eight o'clock in the morning. Jeez. And so it was back and forth. And it was that whole scene with the, you know, assassination and, um, and it was uh, just over and over and over. And we uh, before long, we were being able, we were started entertaining the audience between takes. We started doing like <laughs> our own little like, like improv routine and they would right. applaud and just had a great time. And so, but yeah, yeah, I didn't, I had no idea. I thought they were like, well, let's talk about these characters. No, it was like, okay, get up there and start moving. <laughs> okay. We need to kill Lincoln and, you know, get on. We're on a budget. We're on a schedule. So it was like, let's, let's get this, do this. Dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> Right. And hey, and with the amount of money they were paying me, give me my little tin cup and I will, you know, whatever. Fair enough. So, well, let's yeah. uh, let's keep it rolling there. I, I yes, we could come back to that sometime. I actually kind of would like to come back to that experience sometime, but we got to yeah, keep sure. rolling here. Uh, April 14th of 1912, the Titanic strikes an iceberg on its maiden voyage. 
The unsinkable mm. ship slowly disappears into the cold North Atlantic, not to be seen again until 1985 when Robert Ballard discovers a boiler, which then leads the rest of, or the crew to the rest of the ship. Cool. It happened. And they found a, I think they found a door with. <laughs> there was, there, there was. Jeez. With yeah. enough space for two people two on people. it. Sons of. Mm. <laughs> Uh, no doubt about that. No, uh, of course, uh, James Cameron made a movie out of it later on and Im- forever immortalized what was probably the f- most famous ship in history as it was. Um, but uh, certainly there's very few people in, in at least the United States. I don't know about the world. I've been around enough. But uh, certainly in this country, there's very few that have not at least heard of the Titanic. I'm curious about the science of a sinking ship okay. that I would like to look at one time. Because, you know, it's like you're thinking, well... You just go up on the dock, you know, or the deck, excuse me, and then mm-hmm. once it sinks, you know, the water comes up and you just tread water. It's not that big of a deal. But mm-hmm. I think with a ship that big going under, I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Oh, yes, sir. So you have to understand so, that the water started to fill in the front. So it's like anything. Water is heavy. Water weighs it down. So it pulls the front down. Yeah. So it doesn't just go down flat and level. It pulled the front down. And so... When it went, it literally tipped everything up on end. But the thing is, it broke between the third and fourth stacks. So, But the, the keel itself, the bottom of the ship, didn't break off. So as the bow started to fall down and go completely underwater and start heading down into the depths, it jerked on the, on the, uh, the keel of the stern and basically mm-hmm. pulled it upright. And it actually did kind of float there and bob a little bit until the front broke away, and then eventually it filled up and went down. And, you know, I had a board game called The Sinking of the, the, Sinking of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And you had these, like, you, it was like uh, the Titanic was on the top, and you would have to roll dice or whatever, and the Titanic, you would, the uh, there's pictures of it, but um, I think it's from the 70s. And the Titanic w- is like on a big wheel, um, and it's in like three pieces. So you have the front, the front part, which is on a grid, which is the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then you have the background, and then between them is the wheel. So the top half of the wheel is visible. And you roll dice, and the Titanic slowly turns, going under. Jeez. Oh, mm. And you're supposed to get your pieces out and onto a boat, and then the other side of the wheel was the rescue ship. Okay. And hmm. so you had to wait basically for the other for the ship to for the wheel to turn all the way around. But um, I had forgotten that we had that. I'm like. And it, there was nothing at all bizarre about a board game about trying to survive <laughs> the sinking of the Titanic for me at that age. That's a little but strange. It was from 1976, I think. So, huh. fair enough. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, April fifteenth, nineteen fifty five, Ray Kroc starts the McDonald's chain of fast food restaurants. Mm. Did 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 he? We'll have to talk about well, this one later. <laughs> Ray, he um, he was the one that kind of really 
he was the one that really kind of made it expand into the empire that it is. Exactly. I've, have like, you guys seen the? It's it's called the Founder. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That's that's it's fantastic so movie. That's fantastic. why I put this one in here. I want yeah. I use that one in class, and we talk who's the real founder and who's right. It's a great dichotomy in in morality and business. There's another documentary. It's on Prime. I think. Um, it's I think it's called The Real Founders. Watched it last night. I, I I just put it on my watch list yesterday. I want to watch that one too. It's okay. It's, it's, that stuff fascinates me. It's I. It's okay. It's not as okay. good. It's not as good as the founder. But oh, no, I, I literally watched it last night, or at least part of it. I actually shut it off. Um, part of it was I wasn't paying attention, so it's probably better than you think. But it's actually archival footage of a of an interview that was done in like 1994. Oh wow. Okay. So. Yeah, but the the um, how they show how they were trying to make it in the founder, excuse me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how they were trying to make it uh, efficient, the most oh, efficient sure. way to make the the burger process and whatnot. The that really, scene where process. they're doing yeah, where they're doing kind of the ballet and the dance. First yeah. off, the scoring yeah, yeah, yeah. too is really good, and then the the scene itself is really interesting how they did that. Um. I I I really love that movie. Like I said, I, I use that one in my intervention class at least once a year, um, and we we go through it and we we talk and we we stop about every five to ten about you know after every couple scenes. All right, so who's who's right? Who's wrong here? You know, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's interesting to listen to the kids. You know, in middle school they're very much morality based. So well, Ray mm-hmm. Kroc's a jerk for taking it away. Well, no, it's funny to watch them because at first they're like, yeah, Mac and, and Dick McDonald are, are dumb. They, they they have this golden opportunity, and they won't do it. And then they watch Ray Kroc take it away from him. Well, he's wrong. I'm like, well, that's not what you were saying a day and a half ago when we were watching this. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but I'm like, don't. That, it's okay. You can change your opinion based on new information. You know, we have a great conversation about it. But, yeah, it's, it's a, a very fascinating thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, and plus, you know, it's uh, I haven't really eaten McDonald's in so long. Um, no, not not to be judgment. I mean, because I I mean that was like my jam for a time. I would get like a double quarter pounder with you know fries and stuff, and just would eat the. Ooh. Yeah, that was always great. But of course, packed <laughs> on a few pounds for a time. What? Yeah, I know, I know. It's crazy, but it just it kind of made me go, wow. I kind of wish, you know, I could have a hamburger. But I know I would eat it and just feel like, oh god, it's just kind of just sitting there festering. But yeah, yeah. My daughter's a huge Happy Meal fan, so we're there probably more than we should be. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> Been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Geldmacher, how about you take the next yeah. one? April seventeenth of nineteen hundred sixty-one. Some 1,400 Cuban exiles attack the Bay of Pigs in, a, in an attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro. Another example, Fidel- another example of something that can have its own episode eventually. Right. And, you know, it, it was kind of difficult because everybody knew that Fidel Castro had a great arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. He doesn't uh, have to have the arm. No, he he could he he could run on his horse. I mean, so to overthrow him was going to be hard. That's funny. It's not that I he had the that. arm; it's, it's that he had good legs. Okay, so you know, just, yeah. as long as you catch up. No right, problem. right. <laughs> oh man, now, man. This honestly, this is every one of these we've had so far can have its own episode. In fact, it might uh, before this is all said and done. Not today, obviously, but. Uh, I oh. think we should do the whole uh, founder, the whole McDonald's thing. I think that'd be interesting. I, think we I agree. Yeah. We should do that. 
I agree. I agree. I, I like I said, all of these. There's some things we can, we can do with all of these that are pretty. I mean, these are. Uh, we weren't kidding. This is a major week in history. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. April thirteenth, nineteen seventy. Fifty six hours into Apollo 13's flight, an Apollo or an oxygen tank exploded in the service module. Astronaut John Swigert saw a warning light that accompanied the bang and said, "Houston, we've had a problem here." Swigert Lovell who was the commander, and Fred Hayes then transferred into the lunar module, using it as a lifeboat, and began a perilous return trip to Earth, splashing down safely on April 17th. I love how they, you know, how they depict it in the movie where they bring in basically a whole, like, bag full of stuff and just dump it on a table and say, okay, you need to figure out how to make this ventilator work based on these materials. Okay. And they did it. Spoiler alert. (laughs) That exact and, scene didn't happen the way that they made oh, it. Oh, don't kill me like that. So, uh, you know, they oh, had a bad was one guy. Like, oh, just look into the, the garage and, you know, pull out one of the ones and no, pull so, this out and replace it. Okay, so over the weekend, so uh, Smithsonian Channel has been airing as free preview on Dish Network, and I've been watching the crap out of that lately. And they had <laughs> the real story of Apollo 13 on there. If you get a chance to watch it, it's great. And basically they said... It was funny. It was died. it was interesting because Ron Howard was on there as well, and he explained how yeah yes there are some inaccuracies from exactly what happened like the scene where they had where uh, Kevin Bacon and uh, Bill Paxton who would be Hayes and Swigert well the other way around I guess Swigert and Hayes respectively uh, they get into that big argument and they're like what that pressure gauge read and I started they told me this you know that that never actually happened but Ron oh. Howard he made a good point he goes. The tension was there. That kind of tension was there, but it's over a long period of time and it's building up. And, you know, people can't necessarily get that if you just don't say anything. You have to show tension on film, on screen, which Hatfield, you completely understand. Well, you both understand that. And Mm -hmm. so they had to put that in there. But I I understand it more because, you know. (laughs) Right. But, I mean, seriously. And, and like, uh, I would love, uh, believe me, I, I think I may have figured out how to get a hold of Ron Howard. But uh, anyway, um, I'd love to get him on here. Always with the teases. Always with the teases. We'll see. We'll see what I can do. <sighs> but, I mean, he just he made a good point about that. But uh, yeah. they they had the engineer that actually came up with the, the way to make the, the filters work. And he goes, yeah, that didn't. they didn't exactly have everybody in there, and they threw it down. What they did is they said, okay, here, this group of select people, here's the list of what they got. Figure it out. And it actually was really, really, really uh, simple. Close, but that's the same thing. I mean, yeah. it's just it looks it looks better if you're dumping it on a table. Exactly. Than, okay, here's a list. It's typed up. It's single space. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's like no. It's I mean, but that's yeah, kind of it is. Right, and you're providing optics for what there might not have been optics for otherwise. It's it's that's fine. By watching right. that uh, that show alone made me completely rethink how I feel about historical accuracy in films. And I, I now understand that sometimes they can't be perfectly historically accurate because it doesn't oh, no, play well on the screen. And, well, and- I mean, the thing is, is that you, you do run into, I mean, cost issues mm-hmm. like, you know, in the, you know, just well, the Hatfields and McCoy's miniseries, my great, great grandfather did not preside over the hog trial. That mm-hmm. was a completely different Hatfield that did that. Mm. But you're not going to have this one guy just for this one little blip on a scene. Why not just, you know, we, we're going to establish this other person anyway. So we'll just have that person re- preside over it, you know. So sometimes sure. it can be little things and sometimes it can be like, 
the 1970s version of the Hatfields and McCoys where they walk off into the woods right. arm in arm, best of friends. Right. <sighs> in those cases, yeah, that's 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 an issue. But yeah, you've yeah. got you know cost things, and you have to try and uh, you know up the ante for the dramatic effects and stuff sure. like that. So right. you know, as long as it's you know it's in the same like them dumping it on there versus having a list i that's i don't think that's a necessarily an inaccuracy i think that's just a different know, representation help yeah it's just a little bit more interesting to watch because it is film sure. you know, so. yeah. yeah and i'm not like i said my complete understanding of why and how those decisions are made completely changed and for good reason and uh, it was it was entertaining all right the biggest event of the entire week hatfield it's yours is it? Is it really? Yeah, yeah. it's Hatfield. Okay. Um, I'm gonna. Okay. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a little rude thing here. Um, April thirteenth, seventeen seventy nine. <laughs> the world's longest doubles ping pong match ends after one hundred and one hours. Mm. Actually, it's nineteen seventy nine. Hundred one mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's um. This might be one we don't cover on a future episode. No, probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Maybe not. <laughs> probably not. Let's let's for everyone listening, we're gonna make a little addendum to what we said earlier. Not all of these <laughs> will be episodes. <laughs> there you go. A couple bonus ones. April nineteenth in ninety three and ninety five, the anniversary of the Waco siege and Oklahoma City bombings, so other big sure. things. And uh, early in the next uh, next week, we'll still have some big ones. Uh, April 20th Oh, my is gosh, a yes. Just day. thinking about what's coming up next week. Oh, wow. All right. We have gone 45 minutes on this week <laughs> oh, boy. on this. So let's take a break. Let the people get a chance to get a drink. Get yourselves a drink, and we'll come back after this. How's that sound, guys? Sounds gravy. Be back in just a little bit. Welcome back to the History Bros. As we begin our discussion on an event that happened in 1993, October I believe was the month, over the course of about 30 hours, 24 hours give or take, actually I think it was 18 now that I think about it, but the point is there was an unbelievably desperate battle that took place in a place known as Mogadishu in Somalia. Uh, A book was written about it, a movie was made out of that book. We're talking about the Battle of Mogadishu, or as you all know it, Black Hawk Down. Gentlemen, yep. let's get after it. Um, I remember this. Uh, I was in college, and I remember there were some things that were going on about it. And I remember distinctively reading a. Um, it was a political cartoon. It was only had two panels. The first panel had uh, a man in uh, like a combat uniform, desert fatigues, whatever, helmet and all that stuff, mm-hmm. feeding an emaciated um, black child. It was in the the soldier was U.S. and mm-hmm. um, it says Somalia on the child, I believe. And in the second panel, the child has a full belly, uh, smoking gun is up and the soldiers, you just see his feet sprawled out like he's been shot. And that, to me, kind of it. 
I when Black Hawk Down came out, I mean, it was obviously making a very dramatic, um, you know, telling of this event, which I I don't think could have been uh, exaggerated right. um, by any stretch of the imagination. But um, to kind of give uh, Rue, do you want to kind of give a, a a background as to what the whole why we were there, what the whole purpose of this was? Yeah, so um, to to start this off, I'm going to flat out tell you, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the research and, and everything now shows that um, this was, at its root, Osama bin Laden behind most mm. of this. He was the one that was uh, funding a lot of the, uh, a lot of Adid, uh, his, his, his whatnot and, and whatnot, uh, sorry, <clears throat> I'm rambling. The point that I'm trying to get it at is, um, at the end of the day, this is another one of the um, U.S. versus uh, the. I'm going to say the Muslim world. That maybe not exactly the way to say it, but um, the, the fight that we were dealing with with um, Saddam or not Saddam Hussein, excuse me, Osama bin Laden. It was a terrorist issue. Basically, sure. what you've got is in Somalia. Uh, a bunch of civil which is unrest. the Horn of Africa, correct? Horn of Africa. Yep. Uh, so on the eastern side of Africa, like you said, the Horn there, um, mm-hmm. and you've got civil unrest and civil war going on because um, there is really no established government, and so you've got warlords that kind of take over. It's, it's basically it would be the equivalent of having gangs take over a city, that type of thing. Okay. Um, same type of thing that way. And, and so those that were, quote-unquote, innocent to it, you know, which is the masses, quite frankly, are being controlled by those who are willing to commit acts of violence to create fear and control that way. Basically, it was chaos. It was anarchy. Sure. Yep. Um, and, and maybe it's not quite that simple. But, I mean, that's really what's going on. And so well, without, also without sort of like an established government, you have a lot of shipping Yes. That would kind of go through this area, and so you would have a lot of piracy. And actually, if I'm a, if I'm correct, piracy is still kind of a big deal. Yes, um, out there where they would basically, you know, stop ships like they would shoot at them and whatever, mm-hmm. and they would come on board. Nothing substantial. I mean, I mean, you're thinking over time, you don't have that much uh, financial backing. So sometimes they're coming out in these little like speedboats, and they would hold these uh shipping um uh these ships like uh hostage for money and that was kind of a a big thing um so there's a lot of piracy there's a lot of um essentially lawlessness that's going on in somalia at this time right so and and in the absence of like a, a centralized government then you do have the same thing happened in iraq after the fall of saddam hussein uh, same thing happened actually in Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire, except that you have them on much more uh, country level scales where you have these strong men rise up to kind of take control. Right. right. To go back to your piracy thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, I believe we're all familiar with the Captain Phillips movie and, and incident um, that is outside Somalia. Same type of thing. Uh, it, that same deal, exactly what you're talking. Oh yeah, about. yeah, with uh, Tom Hanks. Right, right, right. Who? 
Right. Tom uh, is up and coming actor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, Tom Hanks. There's a good guess. Right. Anyway, so basically what happens is in 93, the United States decides, and this is, of course, Bill Clinton in the early years of his presidency says, you know, we need to do something about this. We're, we're seeing people being deprived of food, and we have the means to fix that. And so what he well, does to, is – Wait, to kind of to go back, these warlords were – yeah, they were – shipments from the United Nations were coming in. Which is – that's where I was going. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's yeah, okay. So, right. Um, basically, it was to, to – we were sending troops over to protect supplies, the supply chains. In other words, uh, like you said, uh, the United Nations was trying to send food in. And so the United States, uh, along with a coalition to an extent – uh, of, of forces were going to defend the, the distribution of these, um, uh, the, or the distribution of the food. All right. Well, obviously, because these warlords were basically getting control of them and using that to consolidate their power. Like they would give food out to people that were going to be loyal to them Correct. or do stuff. And so it was like they were the food we, the United Nations was shipping in food because these people were starving. And then the warlords would commandeer that food and keep a lot of it for themselves and dole it out as a way of uh, creating loyalty amongst uh, the people in the districts that they were um, controlling, essentially. Right. The, the food was essentially currency, and he who controls sure. the, the, the food controls the power. And so what ends up happening is the United States also says, okay, we're going to try to take out – and I mean, we're skipping ahead on some stuff here, but – um, that we're going to try and take out some of the people that are leading this, or at least hold them hostage, or, or you know, we're, we're going to take some action to try to make something happen. And so the, the decision is made that the United States is going to go after uh, one of the uh, the warlords or one of the leaders. And the soldiers that are being used in this aren't aren't your regular boots on the ground grunts. We're talking special ops. Um, so we're talking mainly. Uh, uh, Rangers from the 75th Regiment of the of, uh, 75th uh, 75th Ranger Regiment and Delta Force, along with a few um, pararescue jumpers from the Air Force, as well as a couple of Navy SEALs. Um, right. And so that's who's doing the most of this. And of course, these guys are operators. So, like the, what we would call a snatch and grab, or basically going out and and finding somebody and bringing them back in. That's their gig. Specifically, uh, Muhammad Farah uh, Aidid, who right. was one of the uh, warlords that was causing a lot of trouble. They figure what they would do is if they cut the head off the snake, then you know they'll be able to kind of get more control. So the purpose of this operation, which will become the Battle of Mogadishu, is to go in, send these groups in, and snatch this guy up. Take right. them and um, and then hopefully there'll be enough chaos and maybe you can divide and conquer the group because other people there may be struggles for power, that kind of stuff, which could actually have made the situation worse. Right. Um, but um, we're thinking, let's go in there. Let's grab this guy, because, I mean, it's an impoverished state to this day. I don't necessarily think that it's. Um, that it is considered outside more or less of a third world country. It is not but, stabilized. Um, the situation is not stabilized at all. If, if anything, it's, it may have even gotten worse. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> they send in um, some troops. Uh, how many altogether do we think? Was it like it's a little, around 160? About 400 is what I'm looking at here. Well, I, I take that back. It's 400 total that were based there. They went in with at least 60. 
And basically what this force is, it's on, on uh, uh, October 3rd, I believe they went in. Uh, basically, you've got these uh, elements of the 75th Ranger Regiment. You've got 1st Special Forces, which is Delta. Uh, and you've yep. got helicopters from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, or SOAR, or SOAR, 160th SOAR, which is essentially the best of the best as far as helicopter pilots go in the, the uh, Air Force. And then DEVGRU, which is the SEALs. And then, we, like I said, a couple of pararescue uh, Air Force pararescue and combat controllers, basically that could could uh, um, uh, control the airspace and whatnot. And basically, they're going in after Adid's financer, which is uh, Osman Ali Otto, because they couldn't get to Adid, but they could get to his financer. And if you take away the financer, he loses his Close money. Time. Exactly. Right. And so this is spo- they they go in, they find Otto, and basically, or Atto, I guess is his name. And what happens is this is, should be a, a pretty, I don't want to say routine because nothing's routine, um, but a, a pretty basic one-hour mission, go in and get them uh, and bring them back out. And now we're gonna, we'll are gonna start the process of diplomatic relationships and putting economic pressure on Adid. Mm-hmm. And then things go to heck because what happens is <laughs> as they fast rope in off, as, as the Rangers fast rope in off of one of the... Uh, the uh, uh, Blackhawks, the the MH60 Blackhawks that they were using, something happens, and for one reason or another, one of them falls off the rope and it becomes very seriously injured. Okay, well that changes the mission now because you have to extract them, and they didn't have the vehicles to extract extract them right there. So the ground force has to work their way to them. They got to get them loaded, and in the middle of this, two things happen. Number one, they're on the ground longer than they expected, which leads to the second thing. One of the Blackhawks get gets shot at and hit by a mm-hmm. um, uh, surface-to-air missile, or basically uh, not even that, uh, an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, yep. and it shoots <clears throat> it down. So now you have a mission that was supposed to be a one-hour, more or less, for lack of a better term, snatch, term, snatch and grab. Go in, get them, bring them back out, and call it good. Now you have a, another aircraft on the ground. You have a crew of aircraft uh, pilots uh, and whatnot on the ground that that you have to get out of there, um, yep. and you've got a, a rapidly devolving situation as the entire militia, Somali militia, uh, SNA militia, I should say, is now starting to come in and surround, and it's only going to get worse as they get more and more and more people. So you've got you know sixty to a hundred people throughout through the course of I think it was like one hundred and fifteen that were involved in eventually. eventually. They're going to eventually get surrounded by somewhere between three and five thousand people, by estimate. So you can imagine this is not a good situation, and I'll let you guys kind of continue on if you want. Well, I think first there is um, there was uh, IDEED's militia was attacking a lot of uh, a lot of UN peacekeepers that were there. That it was like it was basically open season. And I think a lot of Pakistanis, oh, if sure. I'm correct, were were killed. Um, and so when they went in to to uh, get ID'd, their intelligence was not very good. Um, And so um, they, you know, in the process of going in there, to my understanding, the initial operation was starting off relatively good. One person, I think, um, based on the movie, uh, did kind of fall out and injure himself. 
um, which is kind of strange because this particular individual, I mean, went through the Battle of Helm's Deep without any sort of issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. Orlando Bloom was the actor and is the whole Lord oh. of the Rings tie-in. That's what I was trying to do. Anyway, so... Um, I was going to let it go. I, was just, I wasn't yeah. going to address it. Just okay, well, work. there you go. So, uh, you know, just trying to see who's paying attention and obviously nobody in this room. So no, that's okay. That's um, okay. So, the first... so anyway, so... Go ahead. I was going to say, the first one goes down, and that's Elvis Walcott, or uh, Cliff Walcott's his name, and Donovan. Okay, well, that's that's not the guy that falls. No, but those are the but, those are the pilots of Super 6-1 that get shot down. But, first. yeah, as they're coming, I guess, to uh, to collect the, the people, then all hell breaks loose because it right. seems like the entire city um, is armed to the teeth. And, you know, you would think, I mean, yeah, these – warlords would have guns kind of out for people to because you know you're not going to have like an actual like army standing army so um so you're trying to get these guys out and one of the blackhawks which is a large helicopter for transport is shot down and now you have these people that need to be removed and you have a transport chopper that's down and now you need to get those guys out as well and so you have to so in the process in the movie uh black hawk down really it is the most tense (laughs) uncomfortable movie i I mean i remember watching it and i knew you know to a certain extent the events that were going on and i'm kind of like this is and every time i get so bent out of shape watching it because they were i mean it was like they were against an entire city well, mm-hmm. they were. <laughs> they absolutely were. You know, you're absolutely right on that. You know, and then on top of it, you're trying to do that. And so you're you're changing the mission parameters. And of course, you have everybody in one spot, you have to go to another spot. So how do you get your, your people over there? And part of the problem was they weren't able to get real time feedback to the crew on the ground as they were driving. So they'd say, well, turn right here. No, you missed it. It was the one back there. Well, you got to tell me quicker. So I know when to turn. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they had that going on. Uh, they didn't have air support, which in most cases they usually have air support. They did not have that available this time, which would have been a huge game changer. Uh, sure. Um, and then on top, so the, now as you're making this change, the next aircraft comes in and it's Super 64, uh, piloted by Michael Durant, um, who has subsequently gone on to write a couple books about his experience with this. They get shot down again. So now not only do you have one Blackhawk on the ground, you got two in two different mm-hmm. locations. And in both cases, you have dead pilots and sur- uh, dead crew members and surviving crew members. So what do you do? You know, and, and in the second one, uh, when, when Durant went down, he was still alive. He actually was taken prisoner. Gary Gordon and Randy Sugart are going to earn the Medal of Honor for their actions. They walked in. To, or basically, they were asked to set down. They asked to set down, go into the fight. And defend that helicopter, and they defended. Well, they were special. They were special forces snipers, right? Correct. They're both Delta snipers, and because uh, mm-hmm. I, I originally had credited them as SEAL snipers, they're not. They're Delta Force snipers, and they they killed off a, a number of people until they ran out of ammo and uh, were finally both were were killed, and both were awarded or awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions. And I mean, there's mm-hmm. a million different people that we could not a million. Probably about 115 different people we could talk about in this one, but I wanted to make sure I, I got those names out there because those two, what they did is they, they knew they were going to die. They knew they were going to fight and die, hoping right. that they could get Michael Durant out alive. Wow. 
You know, it just and like I said, now not only you're, you're in three positions, but eventually two positions as they end up basically working to the the two crash sites, um, and they're getting shot at from from every direction. I mean, I just the uh, the movie does a nice job with it, but I mean the chaos. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like. And I don't want to imagine it, to be honest with you. I think Hatfield said it uh, perfectly. You know, it sets you, you feel you feel that tension. You feel that chaos. Mm-hmm. You feel uneasy um, watching the, everything take place. Uh, you just you feel like you're, you know, you're sitting in your living room. Something's going to come up from behind you to affect the movie. That's that's how twisted and, and tense it is. It's right. uh, it really it does a good job of, of telling the story. Now the um the operation I think was called uh, Operation Provide Relief. Gothic Serpent. Well, the um, actual the actual mission that went to, to heck was called Gothic Serpent. The 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 uh, the entire thing uh, was trying to uh, bring around the U.S. Apparently, within six months of um, the U.N. sort of participating, the U.S. moved about forty eight thousand tons of food and medical supplies. Right. To international humanitarian organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in December of 92, uh, they realized that greater efforts were needed because the famine that was happening in Somalia was on such a huge scale. Um, they enacted an even greater push for humanitarian in the U.S. Um, uh, stepped up to... Um, create operation restore hope the undertaking deployed 37,000 multinational personnel to the war ravaged nation and um since the beginning of the u.s intervention um the um special operations initiated a variety of missions um the ability of special forces this is all from uh uh army um the u.s army Mm -hmm. Uh, since the beginning of the u.s intervention um, it initiated a variety of missions, the ability of special forces, civil affairs, and psychological operation soldiers to function independently, and as part of an international coalition made them an effective force multiplier. Um, at the onset of Operation Provide Relief, 5th Special Forces Group deployed to Somalia to protect the transportation and delivery of relief supplies from Mombasa, Kenya, to airfields in Somalia. Um, they, uh, the 5th uh, teams also conducted medical and airfield assessments, assisted with food distribution, and established uh, rapport with local factions and clan elders. So, on the offset, you know, they're trying to assist these people, and they're trying to bring food, and they're trying to bring medical supplies because the famine is on a. I think the movie classifies it as a biblical scale, and they're really trying to do that, and so. You kind of think that when the U.S. is there, that maybe some of these groups would see them as help, mm-hmm. but right. they're not. They're absolutely no. not. Um, sure. Then let's see. Um, the well, there's uh, several things that kind of lead up to that, uh, up to the October uh, battle too. There's the uh, what's called the bloody Monday attack. And right. that is, um, that is when, uh, a group of civilians is allegedly killed by American ground troops. Um, which the army denies that even taking place. Uh, but a number of people were killed. 
Um, then there's the death of four journalists. Uh, that takes place in the summer, late summer of 93. Um, you know, a, a, a deeds militia detonates a, a remote control bomb, killing four soldiers in August. Um, and then it was at that point, basically that the, uh, U S military said, okay, this, this is getting out of hand. We're going to deploy a bunch of folks to the area. And that's when like the military presence really got ramped up was in August of 93. Right. Yeah, and then in October, I think it was like a it was a seventeen hour event of the you know things are getting bad, um, and so they send this right. group in to 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 get ID'd, and over a period of seventeen hours, I mean you've got people that are getting shot, people that are injured, right? And it's not like you know if someone and here's the thing, and they put this about um, in the movie really poignantly that people that are killed they're not just going to okay well we're just going to leave them here and go on we're going to take them with us right um yeah, yeah. unfortunately you and this is this will never leave my mind but in the news uh both if i'm correct both delta snipers were killed correct that mm -hmm. uh were trying to protect uh the second uh crash site uh, the first crash site goes down. They're trying to support that. And as another uh, helicopter comes in to sort of lift them off, they get shot. And now you have two sites that you're needing. And you're thinking these people are going to come in there and they're going to, if there are survivors, they're going to get captured. They're going to be tortured. They're probably going to be killed. You don't want to just leave them there. Oh, no. Right. No, and so you have to try and secure now two crash sites. And Michael Durant's is the second one. And um, they, as a route, had said, they, you know, drop a couple of uh, Delta snipers in to kind of cover until the people get there. Those snipers are overpowered by just ridiculous numbers. They're killed and their photos and video of their bodies being drugged through the streets. Right. And this was, I don't know. I mean, by this point in my life, you know, when you see, I mean, and it's kind of like what we've talked about with the civil war and, you know, people going out to watch a battle take place because it seems like it's so heroic and whatever the, disrespect that was shown to the bodies was horrifying mm -hmm. to the United to, to people in the United States. We were, and this caused a lot of problems for Clinton because it felt like it was a botched um, operation. Um, people, the body, you know, people, servicemen died, Americans died. Their bodies were, were desecrated and it was it seemed such a barbaric act and people back home were saying what are we doing there and that's when that uh the the political cartoon i talked about came out it was kind of like here we are we're trying to go down there and help people sure and they're killing them and dragging their bodies through the streets like it's nothing mm -hmm. and it was infuriating for me I mean, at that time, because I'm like, that's why, why are we there then? If this is the respect. So it kind of begins to beg the question and we can either talk about this now or let's, we can talk about like, let's, we can finish talking about the event. 
Um, but I want to talk about what is the United States role in the global scheme of things. I mean, there have been times in our past where we've been isolationists, where it's like that doesn't affect us, that doesn't impact us, we shouldn't be involved. And then there are times it's like, well, we are a superpower, you know, we've got this huge military, let's go in and mm-hmm. quote unquote right the wrongs. And when should we do that and when shouldn't we? Right. Let's uh, let's zip up the uh, the tail end of the yeah, uh, the battle and then let's let's yeah. come back to that and, and a couple other questions I think are are very key here. Uh, so basically, what finally happens is you've got a rescue force uh, that is made up of coalition forces, including Pakistan. Uh, I forget there's one other nation, and then the Tenth Mountain Division, uh, Malaysian and Pakistan forces. Thank you. There we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, they finally get things set up. They get some tanks. They get some armored vehicles set up, and they go in after them. Of course, it's not enough for every soldier that's in this. Um, so there's the the famous scene of the, the the men running out in the movie, the Mogadishu Mile. They call it. It happened. There's a number of guys who had to run out of there. Of course, they had to fill up the uh, armored vehicles with the ones that were wounded that couldn't. Um, so there's a number that had to run out on the ground and, and had to fight their way out one more time. Um, And that's kind of how things end up there. And then shortly after that, uh, President Clinton says, we're done. That's it. And he pulls everybody out. And uh, one other thing I want to point out here is, you know, Rwanda came up shortly after that. Um, I think in 99 or something, maybe, maybe it was earlier than that. And I've seen him do, uh, President Clinton did an interview where he, he said, I regret not doing more. But after what happened in Mogadishu, I was a little gun shy was essentially what he said. Oh, sure. Um, so I think there's 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 that, but Hatfield, let's let's get back to what you were talking about and what you brought up. Um, you know, at what point? Uh, what is the U.S. or what should the U.S.'s influence be on these types of things? You know, um, I think that question is 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 there. Well, I mean, f- first of all, it's always whatever's considered right and wrong whoever's good or bad, it's always very hazy. Right. Well, um, right. because you have politics on the ground, you have uh, politics within the culture. Um, and in, in fact, even in the movie, you know, when they're talking about when, you know, they're interviewing uh, the, the money man, I guess uh, at the beginning, the guy says, you know, this is a civil war. This is our war. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, you know, when we fought our civil war, there was, you know, 600,000 people dead. You uh-huh. didn't have, you know, England or, you know, Spain or France coming in to try and, you know, stop or aid us. Or, and it's kind of like, well, should. But did they? Should these sorts of events kind of like fight themselves out? Why should we be going in to, to assist, especially when you have the sort of outcome that took place. But I mean, if you go back and look at the civil war, there's no doubt in my mind, great Britain would have come in on the side of the South. Had they thought that the South had a legitimate shot at winning, but politically they couldn't support it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's going to come down to politics. Yeah. And the other thing, and, and you're, you're right. Hatfield. I mean, you're, you're very right. And, and, and you, you pointed out it's hazy on who's right and who's wrong. And here's the thing. And, and and this may be oversimplifying, and maybe it is, and maybe it is, I don't know, but all you got to do is look at a sports game. 
Um, Hatfield, not Hatfield, um, Geldmacher, I'm going to go cheer for the Cubs, and they're the good guys. And Hatfield, Geldmacher, you're going to go cheer for the, the Cardinals because they're the good guys. And it's all a sure. matter of perspective. Yeah, that's true. Really, it comes down to money, too. I mean, yeah. how much money are you putting forth towards what would be considered, you know, uh, the the job of what was the UN's at the time? But, you know, when you're funding basically 20% of the United Nations, you want to see something for your return. So you're, you're you know, you're committing troops to that, to that success of that, that program. You're, you're committing your resources to hopefully so it's an investment seeing a positive outcome there so it's an um, investment absolutely so uh, you could make the argument that yeah we would send our troops there of course we would because we want to protect that investment we've made okay but as hatfield said to what end you know right hatfield your thoughts i mean it's if we're if we're just wanting to like go in and like the, the one thing that I can try and and uh, and I remember the Mogadishu, uh, the Battle of Mogadishu taking place. I don't, I don't, rec- I don't know enough about the the politics of the time. But what I can kind of equate it to is the fall of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that particular event we felt at the time that um, well, some people felt at the time that um iraq had something to do with september 11th and that they had weapons of mass destruction and uh, that they were developing nuclear weapons and all this kind of stuff i remember i was in japan at the time and my mom was sending me information about well you know they're doing this and doing that and i'm thinking in japan the news was different because they didn't have a dog in that fight. So their approach was, so the information I was getting there was different. It was obviously much more, uh, there was, it was less emotional, I Mm. guess. Sure. But you have Saddam Hussein gets toppled and you do not have a, a group of like, well, world war two, um, you have the military regime that's collapsed, but they left somebody in place to transition Japan from a warlike country to post-World War II, and that's what the emperor was for. A lot of people were like, well, why didn't we punish the emperor? Why, didn't, why wasn't he put on trial? Because he was the leader. And a lot of people kind of felt the same thing about Saddam Hussein in the Iraq War. You have, you know... He was a horrible person to his people. And mm-hmm. but once we removed him, then you could arguably say the country got worse. Well, what you're talking because to... as much of a go ahead. Well, as much of a dictator as he was, he kept everybody in line. Right. And what you and granted he was I mean, he was horrible to like the Kurds. He gassed the Kurds and it was like just he was horrible to a lot of groups of people. But then, you know, you remove that person and all of a sudden you create a civil war within that country because people are trying to. So it's kind of like, okay, we go in. So what I'm trying to say is when you don't know the politics or the right and wrong, you're you're going in thinking, okay, well, here's this horrible person. But we don't understand what the results of removing somebody like that could be. And, you know, goes along the lines of the devil, you know, beats the devil. You don't. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. what what you're referring to is called an exit strategy. And. Uh, Iraq uh, two, uh, I'm going to call it, is 
an absolute classic example. And, and I think Mogadishu in Somalia is another example, a uh, good example of what happens when you don't have an exit strategy. Okay. So at what point do we not need to be here and what is the ultimate gain to be made? You know, well, this person's doing bad things, but what happens, like you said, when they're not there. So there, when there was no exit strategy for Iraq, that's why we're still there and have been for the last, what, 15 years, almost 18 years now. Same thing with Afghanistan, you know, there's no exit strategy and, and you're exactly right. Hatfield, um, this is what happens. Well, there's a, a fantastic movie called No End in Sight, mm-hmm. which came out in 2005, 2005 or 2007. And it talks about, it doesn't talk about necessarily why we went into Iraq, um, but it does talk about what happened after we got there. And there was a uh, one of the big things is that when we knew that we were going to be occupying Germany, we did like I'm wanting to say we planned that for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, Iraq, the occupation of Iraq, they tried to do in 30 days. Right. And you're thinking 30 days. I mean, that's. <laughs> I mean, even in the age of Wikipedia, that's like, we need to slow that down a little bit. We need to be just a little (laughs) bit patient, you know? And, um, and it, it did, it created a huge, I mean, it was a horrible situation and, um, you know, disbanding the military, uh, because we thought that, uh, the military was, you know, on Saddam Hussein's side without considering that here were people that were just really trying to provide for their families. And so Mm -hmm. there's, it, it one of the issues that I have that I've grown to have when we do these sort of foreign interventions is that we never fully understand the culture of the area we're going into. That's very true. And uh-huh. we seem to always want to think that, oh, well, they're just they're human. They're just like us, you know, and well, no, I mean, Mm-mm. I'm not to say that they're not human. But they're not like us. They don't understand. They, the con, like one of the issues in um, uh, embracing defeat, uh, John Dower's book about uh, the United States uh, occupying Japan after World War II, is you think, oh, we're just going to give people democracy. Well, if they've never experienced democracy, if they've always been under, you know, a dictatorship or something like that, a de- democracy is very strange for them. And you need to have baby steps to let people understand you can't just come in, remove the dictator and say, okay, you guys get to govern yourselves. That's right. not exactly how it works for uh, for certain groups of people. Now, I wasn't trying to say that um, Somalis aren't human or that Japanese aren't human. I'm not trying to no, say but that, anything like that at all. But that's like we so- always try to say that our values and our culture are universal, and they are absolutely not. Exactly. And, and that's, there's a lot of different scenarios where we can go into that have nothing to do with war, but, um, exactly. It's like, uh, um, you know, I've got somebody who grew up playing basketball. I said, okay, Hey, go play hockey now. Um, here's the equipment, go do it. And we, we, yeah, we wonder why they can't figure out how to play hockey, you know, or, uh, that's like, uh, you know, someone who can't read said, here's a book now read it. You know, we've given you the tools you need to do it now, now do it. 
you, you, you know, exactly. You know, how yeah, do you, like that. yeah. How do you go in and take a, an established control structure out and say, here's a new control structure. That's nothing like what you had before, but it's better because, you know, it's worked for us for a long time. Um, and then on top of that, how do you convince other people around the world that you're more right than, than what they had or, or what anybody else has? I, I, am I kind of going where you're going there, Hatfield? Yeah, I mean, it's we kind of want to believe that we always have the moral high ground. Correct. Yep. And, you know, America, you know, and just hey. going in and blowing <laughs> stuff up and whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, and there's a lot, you know, for a long time, we were kind of hung up on this, you know, World War II mentality that we were coming in and liberating, you know, Europe from, you know, the Nazis and, you know, and Asia from Imperial Japan and all that kind of stuff. But the fighting, and I think um, Mogadishu was probably one of the first examples that I can think of and maybe you could or you could probably make the same argument about uh, Vietnam, but it's no longer here's an army holding this position, there's an army holding that position, and we line up and shoot at each other. Mm-hmm. It's a um, it's an urban war. The, the the urban warfare is completely different when you have kids with guns, when you have you know women with guns and that sure. kind of stuff, and you know, and it's kind of like you know if and they don't have you know, uniforms. There was a, to what? And they don't have uniforms. Yeah, I mean, people are just in street clothes. It's not like, well, what's their insignia? Is that person a captain? I don't know. He's like five, you know. So right. it's like, and and the thing is, is that if you were, if you're an Amer- and if you're an American soldier and you've got a gun and you're in a firefight, such as what was depicted in Black Hawk Down, and at one point they do, you see this woman come up and you see her grab a gun, and the guy's like got a gun aimed at her, and he's like, "Don't do it! Don't do it!" and he's yelling. And she picks up a gun. Now, if you shoot this woman with a gun, you are defending yourself. But then word gets back home that you shot a woman Mm -hmm. without the context of what was going on in that. And that's not World War II. Right. Or it ends up on, you know, whatever version of television, you know, state television they have. And there's a dead dead body and it's a woman and... You know, oh, the Americans shot this woman, this poor woman. It's a new version well, of pro- yeah, new version then of propaganda. You, then you've turned everybody who's watching that to that television against anything you were trying to do in the first place. You're right. It's a new version of propaganda. Exactly. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. That, okay. it's not a new version, but yeah. Well, right. You correct. <laughs> so, so the the manner of warfare, I mean, has I mean, you you start off with you know Napoleonic. You know, or before prior to Napoleon, where you had like two lines fighting at each other because of the guns that you have, mm-hmm. and then after you know the French and Indian War, you're now doing a little bit more of you know shooting from cover. Your guns, the technology is starting to change, and now you've got tanks and you know two armies fighting each other, trying to outflank each other. To now urban warfare against basically a mob. Mm-hmm. Right. And arguably these this small group that were only really going in there to grab this guy, get in, get him and get out. Yep. We're not trained for this. Well, I wouldn't say they weren't trained for it, but it, it wasn't what they at that time 
they were still expecting, you know, operations in the woods. You know, that was not too well, long after Noriega and, uh, and <laughs> Panama. You know? Another thing you should think about, too, is you've got rules of engagement for, an, uh, for what's supposed to be a one-hour operation. Right. You know, the second it becomes something different, you have to get rules of engagement that are approved from someone way higher up the chain than is on the ground. And that doesn't happen in a snap of a finger. You know, so you're having to make decisions based on on rules you know you're breaking. Right. And accidents happen. Yep. But in these sorts of accidents, people die. Right. And right. then and I mean and death is a pretty big accident. So mm-hmm. the stakes go up and then it just winds up becoming a really, really uh, arguably uglier situation. Afghanistan, we were trying to get the, you know, the the tribes to kind of help us overthrow the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, uh, there's politics involved in that too. Yep. And then you have Karzai, who comes to power in Afghanistan, and arguably he was, you know, we saw him as the bright shining hope, and it winds up that he was kind of corrupt himself too. Mm-hmm. And even, like, you look at Chiang Kai-shek, we back Chiang Kai-shek in the you know the the Chinese revolution that was happening kind of before and after World War II, and he was corrupt. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, and and the thing is, is that we constantly, you know, America and you know freedom. And there was a meme that I saw the other day that it said, you know, we just found out that one of uh, Jupiter's moons, the underneath the ice, is it's completely covered in oil and then you see this angry eagle and it says looks like io needs freedom you know that kind of stuff (laughs) right and i mean and it's kind of like we think that we go in there and we always have the moral high ground and we haven't i mean we backed chiang kai-shek because we didn't want the spread of communism but the person that we backed wasn't a great candidate either right right lesser of two evils and so, you know, whenever people are like, yeah, we need to go to war. We need to bomb them. We need to do this. And it's kind of like, I, we've, we haven't been doing too well. And I'm not saying that the military personnel haven't been doing well. They no. are only as good as the intelligence and the orders and whatever that's given to them. But to get involved, I'm, I feel like I have grown progressively more isolationist. And right. not in a way of like, I want to keep all the immigrants out. It's like, I feel like we haven't done too well in involving ourselves in other countries' politics. And there's an argument to be made for wanting to be isolationists. You know, we have, I mean, how many thousands of homeless veterans on our streets that we could be spending our money on in instead of worrying about, like we talked about earlier, not that those people who have issues across the world not that their issues aren't any more or less important than ours, but when you're going to go into a situation where you could face people shooting at you just because of where you come from or the ideas that you're you know, trying to spread, well, what's the point? Why? Why do that in the first place? Why put yourself in that situation? So here's We have far more now. things to worry about here than to worry about getting shot at by some rando uh, you know, in another part and- of the world. And to pat and to piggyback onto that, you know, we spend more in our, uh, on military funding than the next. I'm wanting to say nine countries behind us combined. Right. 
So and we still are living in like this fear that we're going to be taken over or attacked or something like that. And I'm like, if we spend this much money and we're still living in fear, then there's obviously some other thing that we need to be addressing. There's obviously some insecurity issues that we've got, some daddy issues or something. I want to go but, back. Oh, go ahead. No, but it's like um, we spend so much money. And the thing is, is that then there's the argument to be made if we were to reduce that spending, if we were to cut back that spending, then that could make us more vulnerable um, and make other areas, parts of the world vulnerable. So it's kind of like we've we may have um put ourselves into by spreading ourselves out by trying to bring freedom to the world we may have create put ourselves into a bit of a pickle that well we've got these areas we're going to have to try and defend them at whatever the cost is if right. that makes any sense that may not right it doesn't but <laughs> then you get into well then you get into a whole argument about spending you know uh, you know, are we really spending our money in the most appropriate ways possible? And then that opens another whole giant political can of worms. Um, you know, everything from, oh, no, you hate the troops to, uh, um, you know, oh, we have to take care of the people around the world. Well, you know, there's a, there's a debate to be had on all of those points. Um, but, I mean, just the, the spending overall is a whole other giant set of issues. So let me get, I want to do something here and hear me out here. And uh, there's something to be said about when you have the means to help, do you help? Right. And I'm going to throw a, yeah, high, yeah. I'm going to throw a very hypothetical situation out there and see what you guys think about this one. And I'm just going to pretend that say somebody had chosen to pick a specific group, you know, maybe a, a religious group. We'll just pretend like it's, it's like uh, the Jewish people. Um, and we'll pretend like this ha it was going on in Europe. Talking about Israel? Um, and no, no, not Israel. And and like this guy from say Germany was rounding up all these Jews from around Europe and putting them in these camps, and like holding them there and like killing them off and making them do kind of a, a whole bunch of work. Um, you know, is that something where maybe we should? You know, we have the United, the United States would definitely have the means to do something about that. Should we do something about that? If you are saying that the basis of our entry into a world war was only predicated on the discovery of atrocities being done in Eastern Europe, then I would take you to task on that. But you're absolutely right, and that's why this is not a perfect example. <laughs> I, I like I said, and I know well, that's not a perfect but example. You got to think. Based on based on the example that you're saying, we did allow that to happen for a good while, and we we the, it was known that that these camps were found even right. in the early 1940s, even before the entry of the United States into the war. Oh, I mean, absolutely! And we denied even, entry of Jews into this country. So I mean, right. that's where you have to look at it. If you have even, the, well, even England tried to appease Germany by giving them part of Czechoslovakia, right. you know, by saying, sure. "Hey, well, you know, let's let's just you can do whatever you want, just calm down. Just calm down." Right. So, I mean, in times there have been times where we have allowed these sorts of events to happen for various reasons. Um, we talked about this on an earlier episode where in was it not Times Square, but uh 
whatever the place is in New York where they had the, you know, the big like fascist rally where they oh, had yeah. the swastikas Mad- Mad- and the no, huge, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. yeah, Madison Square Garden. They had a portrait of Washington surrounded by swastikas, and they were all like, you know, saluting. And so it's you know that example. It's kind of like, well, we were letting that happen then. But then, you know, then you wind up getting, but then, you know, then we didn't get involved in Rwanda. Right. And then it's kind of like, well, why didn't we do that? Is it because, you know, exactly. It's another African country. I mean, whereas in you had Bosnia, Herzegovina, and we, we were getting involved in that. And then it seems like, okay, well, we're wanting to get involved in certain parts of the world, but not other parts of the world. And then how do you pick and choose? And that's, that's kind of the point I'm trying to get at. What warrants action by, quote-unquote, the big brother who can come in you know, and save the, the – um, and I don't want to make this big brother versus little brother type stuff, but you know, the, the, you know, what warrants the enforcer coming in and protecting the, that who cannot help themselves? You know? um, right. And, and that's, the, that's the thing. At what point is – because, I mean, the movie Team America World Police is what you were referencing with the whole America <laughs> – and it's great. Right. I love the movie, but it's it's very politically. Um... But it's not. It's. I mean, there's right. a hint. There, all, all satire has a kernel of truth in it. Oh, right. sure. The, so again, the the question becomes: At what point does is it appropriate to step in? Is it is it ever? You know, because I don't believe I don't believe in everything is black and white. I've told you that before. So I can't say never or always. You know, the world is very gray. So, but what criteria says, yep, we should here and we shouldn't there, you know? Well, what would be your criteria? I don't know. That's why I'm not president. That and I just turned 35, so I'm finally eligible. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. 35. Well, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and, and that's ago. the thing. I throw it out there. I don't know what the criteria is, Hatfield. And and I'm not disagreeing with anybody who has the criteria necessarily. Um, but... Uh, you know, that, that's the thing is, at what point do you, you know, I, maybe it is we don't get involved in anybody else's stuff. Well, but, uh, if you're asking what our criteria was versus the criteria that has been used, mm-hmm. because I think there are arguments to be said that um, people that make money off of making weapons... Oh, yes. Want us to mm-hmm. sell those weapons so that we can. I mean, you had the whole, what, um, Iran Contra, mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, we're selling weapons here and trying to do stuff there. And, um, you know, it's in a lot of the times you, we were caught up in, it's, I mean, we, I'm a firm believer that we make a lot of the problems that we then have to try and go back in and fix, which then <laughs> makes more problems. I would agree with that. Oh, sure. So And so I, as much as I agree, and I think it's important that we go in to help where there is a necessity for it. Like, you know, Somalia, you know, the path to hell is always paved in good intentions. Right. And we have you know, Somalia, where we wanted to prevent these people from being starved to death. We wanted to to assist. We wanted to help. And we got stepped into a huge mess 
um, going into Afghanistan. We, you know, we're trying to get Saddam Hussein. And while we're at it, let's topple this overly religious regime and have the people stand up and make it like America, you know, democracy, which they were not accustomed to. Right. I want to... And so, again, it's like, you know, oh, well, it'll be easy because we can do it. Well, that's not the traditions of a lot of different places, which then creates more problems. So I that's where my big conundrum is, is that I have, you know, some part of me that wants to help people, wants to do that Superman, Batman kind of going out there and, you know, you know, stopping bullies from beating up on people but on the other side it's kind of like but it's caused us sometimes more problems and you know if it's another country it's kind of like what um eddie izzard once said you know when people within a country kill themselves we're kind of fine with that right let me throw and then once they step outside that country then it's like oh well we're not going to stand for that for very long you know and um let me throw two you know and it's Go ahead. Let me throw two things out there that complicate this a little bit. Um, and one of them goes back to what I said we were talking about when we first started talking about what happened with Mogadishu. Um, Somalia, probably, the situation probably was fairly, I don't want to say stable. It was, certainly wasn't stable. But, um, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of like sending the, uh, a, a, the, the, what we expected there, I think, is like sending a pro baseball team to play a minor league, or not minor league, a, a, a little league baseball team. But there was a game changer in that there was a gentleman, like I said, by the name of Osama bin Laden that was backing them that I don't think the United States realized until fairly recently that he actually was backing them. And so what probably should have been, I'll, I'll go in and stomp it out real quick, turned into something completely different. And it didn't have to be a long, drawn-out affair. They had to score one victory. One victory. And they, they got yeah. it. They got lucky when they knocked down that, that, that helicopter and blew everything up. And the thing with uh, Afghanistan that we have to remember is Afghanistan, we've been there forever, and it's morphed. But the reason we went to Afghanistan wasn't a humanitarian thing. It's because we were still pissed off about 9-11, and it was our response to that. But then, of course, once you're there, oh, crap, how do you get out of here? There was no exit strategy, and so we're still there. Hmm. No thoughts? I don't it's so it's so muddled. I mean, we've never been in a conflict like in Afghanistan this long before. No, and, I agree. And you know, and we're used to these movies where we come in, we're the cavalry, we come in, we rescue everybody, da da da, roll credits. Right. And, and it didn't ha it doesn't happen that way, does it? We and no. And Iraq and Afghanistan have kind of said, well, let's let's hold on to this for just a second. Mm -hmm. And again, I do not blame the the servicemen and women that have gone over there and risked their lives and lost their lives. No, it's to not achieve there. an end that their political leaders have not created. You know, um, there's this TV show that I've seen. It's on uh, Showtime called Homeland. Um <laughs> And they've got a, there's a really good line in, uh, I haven't seen that. I hear it's kind of, yeah, it's, weird. it's actually uh, in season eight. Unfortunately, I hear Jack Ryan's much better. It's, you know, honestly, Homeland, it's much better now. The first couple seasons were garbage. Well, it just, oh! their analysts were just, their, their, their crypto people were just 
crap. That's an inside joke. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you didn't, Actually, if you Jack Ryan, by the way, I've been watching that. It's it's pretty good. The first Strange. season does feel like it's trying to be Homeland, but Homeland did it better. Continue. Okay, but anyway, in the eighth season, um, they're basically, and, and this is going to spoil some things. Basically, mm. sorry. <laughs> um, what's going on is. Uh, the U.S. CIA people, and it, it's actually Saul Berenson, who is uh, Man- Mandy Patinkin, who is uh, in that, that show, obviously. Um, Such a nice man. Yes. And anyway, he no uh, he's dealing with essentially the leader of the Taliban, and they've captured him. And, and basically, uh, the agreement they've come to, or, or, well, long and short of it, the, the, the leader's son wants to keep fighting. The leader himself says, no, this is stupid. We need to get this done with. And he basically says to his son to justify it. We're strong enough to never lose, but we're not strong enough to win. And that's kind of where we're at. That's, I think that's reality. And uh, that's the thing. When you get into something like this, you know, you think total victory is you destroy the enemy, and that's the exit strategy. But that's, well, that's total not victory. Real. I mean, that's not we, right. We talked about it in, uh, in, in the This Week in History, total victory. And, you know, sure, in, the, in the mind of Sherman, total victory means something totally different than it means now. Correct. Um, but total victory, I mean, as of at, at a time and through much of history meant total victory means there's a lot of civilians are going to lose their lives. There's a lot of destruction that's going to happen. And, yeah. um, and look you know, at the, the world idea of total victory is not so total anymore. No. Well, was it total victory or total war? Well, either way. Both, really. Total war means you right. get rid of everything. Correct. But total sure. victory basically means you surrender on they surrender on your terms and that's the end of it and they're surrendering right. because they have no other options which is right. certainly not the case that we have worldwide but i mean we we could go on for hours about the world situation right now but yeah i, I get what you're talking about there hatfield and brian you're absolutely right and that's yeah. the thing you look at europe after both of the world wars that was essentially total war why they carpet bombed you know, they 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 sure. shot artillery. They didn't care about destruction of property. They said, "Let's eliminate the threats." However, we must do that. And to right. a certain extent, that's happening in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, because there's a lot of buildings getting blown up. Um, and then, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So it becomes, how much can you accept? Well, if you can't accept much of it, how do you? decide you know i i'm going deep, deeper than i'm well i mean no when we were to the the unconditional surrender mm-hmm. during world war ii for the japanese meant that we had to kill over two hundred thousand people correct in two cities mm-hmm. i had to vaporize them to get them to finally you know and it's kind of like in I mean, and granted, you can't you can't judge those decisions in 2020. You have to look at them from, you know, 1945. Um, But I just, you know, I've gotten to be more, especially with these two wars recently, like when we went into when it was uh, Desert Storm. And we went in there, and it was kind of like we had all these brand new toys, you know, F-117 stealth fighters and stealth technology. They can't even see us. And we got Tomahawk cruise missiles, which can go like, you know, a thousand miles and have the, you know, the accuracy of a football field goal, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, dude, we are, we're rocking the Casbah. 
Right. And literally we, and yeah. And we were like, this is, you know, I, we have an amazing military. Yeah. Let's go in and save it. And now it's kind of like, I, I, I don't know. It's like, no, right. No, we've got all this stuff and we're still stuck in there for, you know, going on 20 years. Yeah. Right. So I'll ask this question as maybe we start towards our, uh, closure on this what is the legacy of the battle of Mogadishu known as Black Hawk Down I think the for me personally soldiers can only do what they're ordered to Mm -hmm. and this was a mission that they did based on the intelligence that they had they didn't get a chance to say oh no, I don't feel comfortable with this. They had to go in there and they did what they did. And, you know, for those that died and for the ones that survived, I think that they are, I mean, they're to be commended Mm -hmm. because I probably would have, I would have probably died from pooping my pants like (laughs) just continuously for 17 hours. Right. (laughs) You pooped too hard. But these guys, they went in there, they did what they were told, and then a screw-up happened. They tried to adapt with each thing that was being thrown their way. Oh, something else happened. Okay, now we have to take care of that. Okay, something else happened. Now we have to adapt to that. They showed, it's kind of like, you know, when we're talking about Apollo 13, Mm -hmm. they adapted to unforeseen circumstances in the best way that they could. And I think um, po- political aspects aside, I think it showed a great amount of ingenuity and uh, and toughness on on the side of the American servicemen that were there. Mm-hmm. And so I think it shows that tenacity. But I, again, to I mean, so I don't have a problem with the military people that are going there trying to take care of this. I have a problem with the motivations and the exit strategies. Mm-hmm. So the takeaway for me is that it does show the training and the spirit of, you know, American servicemen in what I, I can only describe as hell on earth. Sure. Hmm. Gilmacher. Uh, I'm going to look at it from a little bit more of a, a bigger picture. Um, you know, it, it almost seems like in situations like this that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, you know, you're you're looked at as the bad guy for going in there and being there in the first place, which results in, you know, military deaths, which no one wants to see. Mm-hmm. But then if you don't jump in, if you don't go there, if you don't contribute oh, you're selfish, or you're not looking out for the rest of the world. Right. And I think it's unfortunate that we put ourselves in that situation, because we've done it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. And I think a lot of times we do so putting, taking that American soldier for granted. Mm. You know, oh, well, they'll, they'll handle it. They'll fix it. They'll take care of it. Um, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my takeaway. Sure. Um, Rude. You know, we didn't talk a lot about the, uh, we didn't talk a ton about the operational side of it, but what I do know is, is that 
from a military stand pa- standpoint, um, as far as what they did in adjusting how they go and do these things, things changed. Um, they, you know, I, I mentioned they had no air support. I don't think that happens very much anymore. And as far as like having a quick reaction force, that uh, doesn't happen either. You know, you've got somebody mm-hmm. who can lo- mount up and get in there within 30 minutes to, to bail you out. Um, so, I mean, lessons were learned from it that way. Politically, I do, th- you know, I, th- I think Rwanda got as bad as it did because Mogadishu happened. I, I think if, if Clinton doesn't have this as uh, something that happens early in his career uh, as president or early in his time as president, I think he probably steps into Rwanda. Now, nothing's, nothing is there to say that the same thing wouldn't have happened in Rwanda instead of Somalia. You right. know? And nothing says that, you know, uh, you know, this happened and Clinton says this is this, enough's enough, we're out of here. Nothing's to say that if this didn't happen, that it wouldn't escalate into a full-blown war in Somalia, that we would have been tied up in just the same as anything else. So, right. I mean, you, you can't predict the future of what would have happened on that stuff. Uh, but I do, th- I think there was a lot of policy decisions that were, were made. And I, d- you know, I do think the soldier's life was valued more after that as a result of it. Because, I mean, yeah, it, you know, there was uh, not, uh, was it Panama that we had soldiers or was it, it was before that? It wasn't Noriega. It was. Uh, something no we sent uh, we sent in i think special forces or whatever to snatch and grab noriega too i think right but there was a mission before that where there were soldiers that died where they tried to do a seaborne operation and it, it failed miserably they lost four seals um and that one didn't get the same kind of publicity but this one obviously does you know and eight, eight years after the movie ended there's or excuse me after the, the battle happened there's a movie out and, and people know this story, and they understand, yeah. at least through the, the, the cinema side of it, the, uh, the implications on the American soldier of, of doing this. Um, so I think there's, there's some of that. But I still think, at the end of the day, ha- uh, Geldmacher, what you said, you know, ah, send the troops in, they'll take care of it, and we forget about what that really means. You know, even though we know what happened in Mogadishu, even though we know what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, at the end of the day, you're right, Geldmacher, and, and there is that side of it. So uh, for me, um, I think there's policy changes, but I don't, I don't know if at the end of the day, looking back on it over 25 years later, uh, I don't know how much has really changed. No. I mean, there's massive changes, but we're still doing the same stuff. And I don't, again, I don't put it on the soldier. I don't put it even on those that plan the military missions. I look at it and say it's the politicians that come in and make those decisions because that's who's making these decisions. It's politicians. And and that's the thing is the soldiers hear the history. They, They know what's happened. They've studied it because that's how they stay alive in future battles. The politician comes in, I've been elected, yay! And they don't necessarily have to know what happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 50 years ago. And so we talk about the the, the cycle repeating itself. Well, that's because we don't don't do enough to know what happened before us. But I'm getting on the soapbox and getting off course. No, 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 you're you're right on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my thoughts. Gentlemen, this was a good one. It took a more serious tone, but I liked it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the thing is, when you when you talk about history, this kind of stuff, that's the most engaging part of it. 
Mm-hmm. You can talk about yeah the, the the events that took place during the you know Battle of Mogadishu, but um, you know there's so many other things that it you know <clears throat> that's involved with it and that it impacts and so yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, Rude, you mentioned that we didn't talk a whole lot about the operation itself, but we we I think most importantly we touched on the human element of it, how that- it affects the people that were involved. And that's the bigger piece. I mean, yeah. we didn't need to explain. I mean, you want to see what happened? Go read the book. Go watch the movie. You can find sure. out what happened. At the end of the day, it's it's about the analysis. What exactly? Oh, what did it do to the human to the human side of this? Absolutely. Yep. Well, gentlemen, thank you for the conversation today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's always yes. A thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. We'll put this. Uh, or excuse me. Um, of course, uh, if you want to check us out on social media, we've got some killer memes going out on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. You can check us out, uh, the History Bros Pod, on all three of them. And uh, like, share, and let us know what you think. If you mm-hmm. have comments on this one, get a hold of us. Let us know. And uh, if you've got a way to get a hold of either Howard Wasden or uh, I believe it is nah, Bowden's is last name i can't remember anyway he's the guy who wrote the book let us know because we'd like to talk to those two guys too <laughs> but anyway um yeah final thoughts gentlemen nope uh no nope not at all <laughs> michael Bowden. that's my final thought that's his name there you go. anyway all right well until next week this has been the history bros have yourself a good one we'll talk to you soon see you peace, peace out deuces